You're listening to the best of The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome. Welcome to Tuesday. It is Tuesday, <laughs> December 23rd. Um, are we there yet? Wait, is it the 23rd? 22nd. Oh, it's the 22nd. See, I'm, a, I'm ahead of myself. I, I want it to be the Christmas break already. Uh, Merry Christmas to those who are celebrating Christmas. Happy holidays to every one else. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Fong, our producer, is in studio. Hello. How's it going, Fong? Uh, it's going great. It's just kind of hard to, you know, go to the board and then come to the mic. Okay, fine. I won't talk to you. <laughs> uh, we're doing a special program for the rest of the holidays. And so if you tuned in yesterday, you heard a couple interviews, special inter- interviews that we did with LGBT older adults uh, like BJ Styles. And it's important to know that we can be proud of the LGBT older adults who have given us the freedom and pride we feel today. And it's not too much to say that there are extended or chosen family, and they're also our LGBT pioneers, and we owe them so much. So this holiday period, I'd like to, I'd like to offer that to you. You know, stories from people who absolutely matter in our community and do not forget them. Mm-hmm. And this is part of a partnership with Open House, a uh, nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to our LGBTQ senior community, such as housing and uh, community programs. So if you're considering, um, you know, making a uh, donation to any charity, I really hope that you will make one to Open House. And you can visit openhouse-sf.org. This special program that we're doing and telling stories with LGBT seniors is also made possible by the generous financial contribution of Mrs. Angela Daniels-Lewis. So we thank them all. And then today's program is brought to you by... Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. You know, it takes a whole lot of money to, to do this, <laughs> to produce this all, and then also to care for our community. And that's uh, unfortunately what makes the world go round is money. But money and love, I'd like to say. It's not, it's not only money, but if we have those two things, I think that we can make it a better place. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm not talking to you, Fong. I'm talking to the listeners, so you don't have to go back and forth from the board to the mic. Um, <laughs> let's go ahead and start the program. And uh, our guest today, I was just reading the uh, description, and I'm so excited for for this person who has served uh, for our country and also has been a part of a uh, an organization, a spiritual organization that you know we know very well, the MCC Church. So I'd like to introduce you to Lynn Jordan. Lynn, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Michelle. I appreciate the invitation. Um, Like I said, I'm really excited. I'm I'm so anxious to hear your story. So let's start like I've started with everyone else. Let's start about your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, in Ohio, where my family's been for 200 years. We were some of the first families in Ohio. And... uh, small communities in northern Ohio, and then what I call home, Creston, Ohio, a very small town of 900 people in mid-central Ohio, where I was raised in part by my grandparents. What was that like, growing up in such a small town, um, uh, you know, as a, uh, a gay kid? I'm, I'm sure, and I, I've asked everyone else this, and, and I don't know if you knew at such a young age you were gay. 
Um, firstly, with the one experience, what I would say is that this was a multi-generational household, so I really began to appreciate at a very young age the history of our families. But at the same time, in learning the histories, I realized that that history was not going to be my history at a very young age, that I was not going to follow you know, the, the generations in terms of, of marrying, getting a job, a career. Um, I, was, I was very aware of being the difference, mm. very aware that uh, somehow I did not fit in with the expectations of what, quote, a boy should be. And I was reminded of that, that I was that constantly by my parents and other members of the family that you're sure different, well, we're not sure what's going on. And that just sort of what it did was basically turn me into a total intro- introvert. Mm-hmm. I just self- basically self-isolated most of um, growing up mm-hmm. and kept to myself. Now, you, like I mentioned earlier, you served uh, in the military. Correct. Um, well, how, what, I guess, uh, how old were you when you were drafted? 19. I was 19 years old when I was drafted. Put it in perspective, this, I, I was drafted during the Cuban Missile Crisis when President Kennedy enacted the draft, and I began my military, four-year military career, just two weeks after President Kennedy was assassinated. Wow. Wow. President Kennedy, uh, you know, means a lot to uh, many people. And um, and in in some of the movies that I've been able to watch and some books that I've read, you know, President Kennedy also meant a lot to closeted gays at the time. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure if you were still in the closet at the time. But uh, what are your thoughts about President Kennedy? Well, first of all, I was fortunate that he had enacted a uh, program called the Manpower Retraining Program. And having been saddled with the label of gifted in high school, I had completed nearly two years of college in high school. So I went into President Kennedy's manpower training program, and during that 18th month, I was getting, I was completing a, a degree in chemical engineering. Wow. And when I got drafted, and I saw that draft as mixed emotion because I had never really been around other that many other men of my age and but at the same time i saw as a shape a chance to escape ohio mm-hmm. which i just felt increasingly was more and more like a, a total closet for me i you know i i came out i was 19 years old and so um while you were in the military and uh and doing your tour you explained that that was also your total coming out experience what do you mean by that it meant that for the first time I was exposed to um, a broad community of of men, many of them, most of whom were probably homosexual, but there were certainly a core of us who that um, that met, and we began to have relationships. And that really opened up when I went to Europe for three years in Germany, where I started going out and little by little finding the gay bars. And for the first time, really had, you know, some long-term relationships, not one-night stands, no overnights, but actually having a series of, of lovers throughout Europe. And it's it's very interesting to hear this, and I feel I feel sheepish almost because I live in this period of time in which, you know, don't ask, don't tell is repealed, and I remember the arguments prior to 
Don't Ask, Don't Tell being repealed and uh, gay and lesbians now being able to serve openly in the military. I, I mean, does that make you, uh, I, I wonder what your perspective is now and uh, in comparison to when you served, um, the government's relationship, the military's relationship with, it, with its gay and lesbian service members. Well, I, I can say for this that basically it was I, I ironically was started out my career in military intelligence, and that was probably, which is a branch of the CIA, and so you could not have been in a worse, worse place for coming out gay. And in fact, I was uh, questioned, I was challenged about being a practicing homosexual. I refused to give them any answers, and so... I assumed that I was going to be dishonorably discharged. Instead, for reasons I still don't know, I was simply transferred and lost my clearance. And after that, I just made it a point that I would continue to work the last nerve of the military by being open and just challenge them, go for it. If you want to, uh, if you want to remove me from the military, you can do so. But I'm going to claim my power to be who I am. I'm going out, and I'm going to enjoy myself and continue to do what I've been doing, which is being my full queer self. And I made it through four years. Wow. wow. I just decided to claim my power then, that they could that they could not ruin my life as they said they would, could do. I, did, I told them they couldn't. They did not have that power. And that I would, you know, and I just, after I was transferred to another base, I, I simply, yeah, even more so, ramped up, traveling all over Europe, meeting people, going to gay bars, and having relationships throughout Europe. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Lynn Jordan, who's sharing his story in partnership with Open House. Open House is a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to LGBTQ seniors. What we're trying to do here is celebrate our LGBTQ seniors as they are our uh, pioneers, pioneers of liberation and equal rights. So make a tax-deductible donation to Open House at openhouse-sf.org. Lynn, I, I, I wanted to ask you this, and, and uh, I'm so fascinated by you know military life, especially LGBT military life prior to being able to come out. Um, I wonder if, you know, you said that you had a total coming out experience if you fell in love in the military and ever felt like, you know, something was in danger, whether that was your relationship or your your own personal self. I I fell in love. I fell in love with a gentleman in Holland, and it was a real wrenching experience when I knew that I was going to have to believe him because part of me really wanted to stay in Holland with him. But I realized I did not have the language or the skills to stay in Holland. And also I realized I really needed to go back to the United States. I really needed to, to go back and really uh, come into a, a greater understanding of who I was. And, and so I made the decision to, leave, to go to San Francisco. Hmm. Uh, that because I met, I met Americans over there and and of course, San Francisco certainly in the 1967 was very much in the news with the Haight Ashbury. Right, and we're going to get to you being yeah. in San Francisco after the break. But I have one more question about, um, you know, serving for our country and uh, and being in a different country uh, at the same time, such as Germany. I I uh, I wonder if at any time during your service that you had felt 
that 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 maybe you should not be gay, if that makes any sense. No, I actually, actually no, actually I realized that this was going to be who I was, that I had met a lot of other positive role models in people that I'm in that I dated, that I met in the bars. I got to see that you know that that basically that this what they'd been saying about us was a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, all the names, all the labels, all, you know, all the negative connotations that I, I began to set them aside and I began to experience my own self-affirmation mm-hmm. and seeing, seeing the positive, positives in the people that I met who were, L, you know, LGBT. You served, I mean, 20 years after World War II um, had concluded in Europe, and, and, and you served, you did a tour of duty in, in Germany. And, I, don't, you, and I, I just wonder, I mean, we know that during World War II, uh, LGBT people were treated horrifically. Did you ever get a sense that um, that, that sentiment had, had already passed or that it didn't pass? It was very much present. They was. They would go in waves in the military, first looking for drugs and then looking for homos. And they had already done one wave of clearing out supposedly homos, so now they were focusing on drugs. And also, there was a unique situation agreement with the German police that if you were the, that if there were gay military personnel in, in some of the gay bars, the German police would escort you out and then they'd turn you over to the military police. Wow. So I had to learn where the private clubs were. And part of that was um, some of the best private clubs were run by the madams in Germany. So fascinating. And they ran so you could go to one of the houses uh, of prostitution, go in a door, and you can go in there, and then there was, you'd meet the madam, and they were astute businesswomen. And they also ran many gay bars, and they would show you, you get to meet them, and then she would escort you to the entrance, to the secret entrance to the gay bar. Wow. We're, we're going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we will discuss your time um, leaving the military and, and yeah. moving to San Francisco. So stay with us, okay? Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here today, this this uh, this Tuesday, um, December 22nd. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Following our producer is in studio. And we're continuing our special program in partnership with Open House. And Open House is a nonprofit organization that provides resources to LGBTQ seniors. And we're telling stories from LGBTQ seniors who are our pioneers and our chosen family, uh, as well as our extended family. And we shouldn't forget them during this holiday season and should forget the fact that not everyone is uh, participating in, in holiday parties or going home to their family. And that's that's uh, what we're trying to get at. So make a tax deductible donation today uh, by visiting Open House at openhouse-sf.org. Our guest today is Lynn Jordan. And uh, we uh, before the break, we were just discussing his time in Germany as, as a service member. Um, and now we'll switch to San Francisco. But before we get there, what was interesting uh, that I read, Lynn, was that you met um, Sergeant Troy Perry. We know Troy Perry, who's Reverend Elder Troy Perry, uh, the founder of the Metropolitan Community Church, but in a gay bar in Germany. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And who knew that, you know, here it is 50 years later and we continue that friendship. That, you know, and that, that also, that chance meeting, call it destiny, call it what you want. Yeah. But it, it certainly uh, was a foreshadowing of what was going coming ahead for, for me and has been for the last five decades. Um, what was it like, you know, in uh, meeting, because for a lot of us, we know uh, Troy Perry as the founder of the Metropolitan Community Church as MCC and a huge activist for LGBTQ rights. But but as a young Troy Perry, uh, when you met him in that bar, what was what was he like? Well, he was first of all, he was he was only in his mid 20s. He had been married, but, you know, basically had had was coming out. And so and went in the military, in the army. He was in the Army, I was in the Air Force, and there was a town nearby with had a gay bar. And so this was for him also, his coming out experience in many ways was, you know, in the military. Mm-hmm. And did you have any inkling or did you know that he was going to become one of our, you know, uh, historical and iconic figures of LGBTQ history? Not at that point, other than the fact that he was conducting prayer, prayer meetings Toward you know toward the end of his tour of duty, but no, I had no idea that mm-hmm. you know that for either of us what was going to lie ahead. Right. Uh, until I picked up an advocate, and there he was, larger in life in 1968, starting a church in Los Angeles. So your time, though, let's focus on you in San Francisco at right around the same time. Um, what was going on in San Francisco during 67, 68? 
Well, I came, actually this month is my 48th year in San Francisco. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I sort of sort of describe myself as sort of a last, last gasp flower child who came to San Francisco to drop in and drop out, wear flowers in my hair and just, and try to become my uh, authentic self and find, um, continue my exploration of the, who I was. And of course, I don't ask me about 1968 and 69 because it was kind of a blur <laughs> of drugs and alcohol. But I was working and I was also going to school. Mm-hmm. So it, but I, you know, I definitely got into some rather self-destructive behavior during those those two years. I think a lot of people did. I don't think you were alone in that. <laughs> so you know, I I recognize it with our queer youth today. You know that you know. When they, you know, their struggles that I, I like to say to them, yeah, I, I had my own, own self-destructive demons that I was dealing with at times. Because no matter what you can say, those labels that they give you still percolate under your skin, and they have a nasty habit of coming to the surface and and talking to you every so often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, interesting enough, though, I mean, that blur of drugs, alcohol, and, and uh, working a lot between 68 and 69 uh, only lasted about that, because in, in uh, 1970, uh, you became involved with the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Church uh, in San Francisco? Yes. Tell yeah, us about it, that. Okay, Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco was the second church in which would become the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches. Our church was chartered on April 27, 1970, and Troy was going to be doing a spiritual renewal service for the church in September uh, of 1970, and it was all in the Advocate and it's in the gay press. And I just, I saw Troy Perry's name, and I said, I've got to go. I had no intent necessary doing church, but I wanted to meet my friend Troy. And I don't know who blew, uh, he, he blew each other's mind out when we met, because I had, he had no idea I was in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But his words to me are sort of the ones that became my mantra. He told me after the worship service, they said, this church needs you, and you need this church. Right. And that began the journey. Began I within weeks I be, you know that month I became a member and I have a background in journalism so I began be, be, took over becoming the editor of the church publications for the next three years. What and, was it uh, you know as, as as a founding member I mean um, and when you opened the doors uh, what was the response like and where was the state of LGBTQ or queer uh, spirituality? It was sitting. The LGBT community was changing. When I got here, they were still raiding the gay bars. There was still police entrapment. But by 1970, with the community relations, especially with Elliot Blackstone, and the fact that there were a lot of LGBT organizations, such as Tavern Guild, Society for Individual Rights, um, and others working in coalition together to, to push back, a lot of it through um, the courts. They only we couldn't even we couldn't even uh, advertise our church in the yellow pages because under under homophobic called homophile organizations 
Mm -hmm. took a lawsuit to overturn that so that we could advertise. And so it was a matter of uh, of the emphasis of the church was on social justice and, and civil rights. Um, there, in 1971, Assemblyman Willie Brown was introducing AB 437 to decriminalize the sodomy laws, which were still on the books in California. And so one of our early acts of the social justice was the congregants of MCC churches throughout California and those that stood with us and other organizations. A group walked from Lake Merritt to Sacramento in support of AB 437. And the rest of us all gathered on buses. And we met them that Friday, and we walked the last mile in Sacramento and stood in front of the Capitol um, supporting the decriminalization of the sodomy laws. It was pretty much my first acts of, of social uh, social engagement for civil rights. I I, uh, I have a question for you in, in, in just trying to compare the, your experiences in the military and having served for our country. And uh, like you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, uh, military intelligence, which is extremely difficult, but in comparison of, of your experiences there versus being an LGBTQ activist in the early 70s, what would you say um, is harder? I would say that, you know, the, the military experience was harder in many ways because of the um, the tight restrictions that I had really on, on my life. You know, I was a military personnel and I was mm-hmm. bound up in the military. Um, my my only concern in San Francisco was there was no affirmative action protection for my job. And so I had run the risk as I became increasingly more and more invisible 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 visible in the community and having a name that I could have lose I lost my job with the state of California. There were no job protections. And there's there that's still the case for many queer people in this country. Right. And oh. so that's how Lynn came about. It's, it's an, I changed my first name. And, and we did not use last names in our church publications. And many of our first names were uh, were created just to protect ourselves because mm-hmm. I was the youngest, one of the youngest ones in the church. Most of the church, and they were mostly men, were of another, an older generation. At least They were at least 10 to 20 years older than I am, and so they brought with them their own experiences of growing of what it was like to have been in San Francisco in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And and for some of them, because of the fact that we were so out and in your face, they, they some of them felt that we were unraveling everything that they had done, but we were, we had just felt that this whole model of assimilation that they had tried was not working, and so that we were, we were going to, about to become our change. Uh, we have a couple minutes left, and uh, sure. I'm really sad because I could sit here and listen to you all day long. I could sit here and listen to all of you. But, um, but you know, MCC Church, uh, the it has changed over time. I know that uh, the church has sold its location. Um, it, 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 with all these changes, the real estate changes, San Francisco changing, uh, you know, what do you have to say to those who are occupying the city now who don't necessarily know or are tied to the history, especially the queer history, in this city? I think it's so different now because what I'm seeing and experiencing is a different form of assimilation as we become more and more integrated into our communities. And so 
uh, you know, again, the question is, do we really need a queer neighborhood? And that even that is changing. And now queer people have more and more options to not come to San Francisco but remain in their own communities. And, and so this is a, you know, it's a whole different experience in terms of how they, how they network, how they, they meet, how they create community. And for some of us, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge for us mm-hmm. because uh, we, we grew up with a different model in this city of how, how we were creating community. And it's, it's, for some of us in our generation, it's somewhat of an estrangement. So I, I'm not sure how, what they are experiencing other than the fact that I know that for the queer youth, especially Lyric, you know, they're still having the challenges of abuse and bullying, the labels, the names, the hate, the intolerance. And so I'm concerned that when they come to San Francisco, um, that are they finding the kind of level of support and integration that, that we created? You know, how are they uh, becoming community in San Francisco? And I'm not that clear yet, you know, on how... Because it is so much different. This is not uh, the Oz that I remember. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult place to live. It is. It's an expensive place to live, and I think it's, for many uh, queer people, they've been priced out of this, this community. Right. Lynn, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us this morning and telling and sharing your story. It's so important to us in the queer community, and well, it's important you, to our future. Michelle. Thank you. Happy holidays. Same to you. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our partnership uh, with uh, interviews of LGBTQ seniors. You can make a tax-deductible donation now at openhouse-sf.org. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of The Michelle Miao Show. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. 
and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here during this holiday season. Happy holidays to everyone and Merry Christmas to those who will be celebrating in just a couple days. Uh, we're doing a special program in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that services LGBTQ seniors. And this program uh, will serve as a reminder to all of us in the queer community that uh, senior issues are issues that we need to be uh, we need to be talking about. We need to be doing something about and not to forget our LGBTQ pioneers. And so as a reminder of that, we're t- we're telling and sharing stories of LGBTQ seniors. And so our next guest um, describes Describes herself as a Jewish red diaper baby, a feminist, a musician, a community activist, a quilter, a foodie, and a lesbian mom. (laughs) It's so awesome. And so I'd like to introduce you to Sally Golden. Sally, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Uh, A red Jewish, I'm sorry, a Jewish red diaper baby. Tell us more about that. (laughs) Um, A red diaper baby is somebody whose parents were in the Communist Party, so thus the red diapers because of the red hammer and sickle. Mm. And um, so my parents were in the Communist Party and had progressive politics, and that's what I grew up with, those kinds of radical politics. I was like, I I was weaned on those kinds of politics. They came to me with mother's milk. (laughs) Now, you know, for a lot of uh, young people, uh, when you hear the term communist, communist party, they don't they don't necessarily think of progressive politics right away. Um, so what was that like, you know, in, in the uh, in the 50s, I guess, um, and what that meant as as being a radical? Well, in my family, um, my, I have a sister who's also a lesbian and she's three years younger than I am and I'll be 70 in January. And um what it was was that we were told that we were part of the wonderful working class and that we were going to take over the world and have a just society. And the revolution was just around the corner, and it was going to happen in our lifetime, and, you know, workers were going to break their chains, and we were going to have a wonderful life. Um it didn't all happen exactly that way. <laughs> but that was what we were told. We were proud to be working class. We were proud to be on the front line of civil rights struggles and, um, you know, anti-racism struggles. Gay and lesbian stuff was never talked about. Right, right. I was, my next question was basically, you know, in, in absorbing all of this leftist politics, this radicalism, I mean, how did that uh, apply to your adolescent life and uh, perhaps um, even life when you came out as a lesbian? Well, it's sort of interesting because I lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which was very close to the village, which is where a lot of the queer culture came from. Um, you know, the Stonewall Inn was there. And yet I was pretty much, um, I had no concept of it whatsoever. 
I just didn't, you know. It wasn't on my radar. But um, I had an, uh, let's see, I went on a study tour to Russia um, when I was in college. So I was like 18 or 19, and because that was my um, major in college was Russian language. And I got involved with actually the teacher of that study tour who was, um, who came out also as a lesbian with me. But we kept it a secret because I thought it was like an aberration. I just thought it was something that was this weird thing that happened and it hadn't happened to anyone else. And I had made a decision that if I felt bad about it, I'd have to tell someone. But I didn't feel bad about it. So I didn't tell anyone. (laughs) Now, you didn't mention it before and uh, kind of just casually said it uh, that this professor came out with you but uh, I've seen I've seen plenty of movies uh, you know that th- that especially LGBT or queer movies in which the student and the teacher do in fact fall in love so I'm wondering if if a relationship had actually um, transpired out of the the you know yes, student teacher had a relationship for a year and a half but it was long distance from New York to Ohio and it was a secret Wow. I mean, my parents knew, knew the, you know, had met the professor, and she was a very dynamic teacher, and we had a lot in common because she also had the kind of politics I had, and she played, loved music, and I played the guitar, and, you know, we had a lot of things to bond over. So my parents just thought, you know, I, I, I guess they thought that I was just, I had a good friendship with this teacher. So was it passionate? Uh, you know, what was the relationship like? Was this was was she your first love? She was my first woman lover, and it was totally passionate. And she was terrific. And um, you know, I I flew out there every I don't know, couple of months maybe. And uh, and but I mean, I was twenty and she was forty four, so. There were significant differences. She had been divorced, and she had two kids who I knew and, you know, who knew me as just a friend of the family. Mm -hmm. And then when we broke up, as I said, I had to decide whether I would say something, and that was my criteria. If I felt bad about what I had done, I would say something, but I didn't, so I didn't. Did you break up over the distance, the relationship not working, or the fact that it was a secret? I think it was just there was such a, a difference in our age and in our, you know, I was on my way to go to um, graduate school for social work, and she was a professor. It, you know, there were significant differences in our life trajectories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, that was why I think we split up. But it it lasted for about a year and a half. This, yeah, and and then, right, and then I... As I said, I I went on with my life, and I figured I had to date guys, and so I did. And then I came out to California, to mm-hmm. San Francisco, and got involved in a community that had a lot of LGBT people in it. I want to get there. I'm going to ask you another question before we sure. get there. And that's, um, you know, there are more movies. I mentioned movies earlier um, that you know, people used to... Just look up Netflix and there would be these like movies for you to watch for queer 
um, issues. But now we've got Hollywood films like Carol, um, you know, starring uh, Rooney Mara and uh, Kate Blanchett, who plays an, uh, an elder woman getting out of a divorce and they have a relationship. And then there was the movie Grandma with Lily uh, Tomlinson. That who, was great. It was wonderful. And I'm wondering if that makes you giggle with glee at all. <laughs> Well, yeah, it does, because it just didn't exist, you know, in 1966, 1967, it just, that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really, I felt I, I, as I said, it's odd in a way to me that I had no concept of gay stuff, even though I lived quite near the village and hung out in the village. I was a folk nick, you know, mm-hmm. but... It just wasn't on my radar for some reason, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure in San Francisco, it absolutely was on your radar. So you mentioned you came out to to San Francisco in 71, so the height of of queer liberation, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I was very active then. And so what what, what, uh, did you you became active and what kind of group of people? well, I became active and I uh, was doing community activism in Noe Valley. I, you know, I think it was around housing. It was around, I, I don't even remember now that was a mm-hmm. long time ago, but various community issues. And um, I also joined a group called um, Bay Area Progressive Musicians Association because I play the guitar. And we did music on um, picket lines and you know, demonstrations and stuff like that. And when I heard about them, I thought, this is, you know, this is perfect for me. And I called them and I said, do you need a guitarist? And they said, and I had been in several relationships with guys at that point. And they said, well, yes, we do need someone, but we want to diversify our group and we really would like a lesbian. And I said, oh, I'm a lesbian. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I was like, okay, here we, you know, this is my opportunity, sort of. Um, has, you know, during that time, a lot of people were arrested, you know, for, for politics and queer people were speaking out and against you know, the discrimination that we had faced uh, simply for being gay. Have you ever been arrested? Um, I have not been arrested, no. I've ever come close, but th- th- then again, yes, you've you, come you, close. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I as a musician. come close. <laughs> Um, what was that like? I mean, was there ever fear? Did that always just meant that you should keep doing what you were doing and being active in the community? Well, I mean, my mother is 91, and she's been arrested 10 times in her life. Mm -hmm. So being arrested is not foreign to me. And the other group that I joined was um, a group called Lesbians Against Police Violence, which was a group that was championing the, um, do you remember the lowriders in the 70s that would go down Mission Street in their cars mm-hmm. and they were getting targeted by the police? And our group decided we wanted to be basically an ally to that group. And there was a lot of, a lot of actions that put us close to arrest, although I actually never got arrested in that situation. But it was scary, but I mean, I grew up with when you need to do something, you protest. That was my background. Right, right. So it, that's what you did. Yeah. <laughs> you took the risk. Yeah. Um, we have a, I have another question for you before we go on break, and which I would love for you to stay around because I want to get into 
you know, the issues that we face today. But uh, in, in the 70s, I mean, even the lesbian community, uh, I feel like was thriving more than, than it is right now. Um, I, I think that's difficult to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a different kind of um, visibility, I believe. I think people were were coming out in a way that was surprising to the general population because they weren't used to people saying, here I am, I'm a lesbian. And so it was, it it got more press, sort of. At this point, there's more um, acceptance, I think, mm-hmm. of being LGBTQ. But at that point, it was still like a deal. It was dramatic, you know. So in a way, it was, it got more visibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Michelle Miao show uh, will continue in just a little bit. We'll have Sally uh, continue her story and telling her life. This is in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization that provides resources to LGBTQ seniors. Make a tax deductible donation right now by visiting openhouse-sf.org. We'll be right back. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Miao Show. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to those who will be celebrating in a couple days. During this holiday season, we've partnered with Open House, an LGBTQ senior organization uh, that provides resources to LGBT seniors um, who are who may be aging in isolation. Uh, but... Uh, 
Your your support of the organization will help hundreds of our extended family members manage their independence, stay in their homes, and engage with their community. And so here on the show, we are featuring interviews with our LGBT pioneers. And so with us on the phone is Sally Golden, um, who describes herself as a Jewish red diaper baby. And I love that so, so much. <laughs> Sally, so, you know, we got um, to the 70s, you were in San Francisco, and uh, extremely active and that probably was just kind of the general um, attitude of a lot of queers uh, in the 70s in San Francisco is to be active and to be out. Uh, But, you know, you had mentioned the relationship that you had with a professor, you broke up with her and then went on to date uh, men. And and, and, uh, when was it that you actually came out as a lesbian? I came out as a lesbian when I joined the music group and said I was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. And from that time, I, whenever I identified as a lesbian and I was always out wherever I was. You have a son um, who was born in 1986, and so, which to me is extremely, uh, well, I should say extremely progressive, but pretty progressive during that time, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> tell tell us what that was like and, and the decision to have a, a, a child as a lesbian or a queer person. Well, I was in a relationship with a woman, Edith, and um, she really wanted a baby. And I thought I would always be an auntie to someone because I never envisioned having a baby. But she was like, no, I want to be a mom. So we did artificial insemination. And she got pregnant, and we had this baby, Morris. And, you know, he was brought up in the lesbian community. There were other people that were having babies around that time, so there was a a community of people that had young kids that were all same-sex marriages. And at the time, of course, I had no legal connection to Morris, zero legal connection to him. Mm-hmm. because we weren't married and we couldn't get married. You know, this was 1986 when he was born. Mm-hmm. And um, But we brought him up and we he went to school and I went to school and did read books, you know, some of the books that existed about two parents, you know, same-sex households and, you know, talked about equality in the classroom. And then I joined a group called Lesbian and Gay Parents Association where we did a lot of workshops on homophobia in the classroom. And we did workshops and made a video called Both My Mom's Names Are Judy, um, which was a 10-minute video and just showed the kids talking about what it was like to feel invisible in the classroom. So he was brought up in that community. And then when he was six, just six, Edith and I were going to split up, but we had gone through or started to go through the second parent adoption, which would give me legal custody and relationship to Morris. And it was really an exercise in insanity because the way it worked was that the Department of Social Services, which is where you had to apply, would send out a social worker and 
watch the interaction between me and Morris and conclude that we had a loving parental relationship. And like when the social worker first came into our house, Morris, who was six-year-old, said, Hi, are you a lesbian? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, No. (laughs) He said, Oh. Well, what do you want? You know, he, <laughs> for him, lesbian was not a charged word. Right. You know, carrot was more charged because he loves carrot. Yeah. But lesbian was just another word, you know. Yeah. But anyway, so they, they went through this whole process, and we applied to, for me to be the second parent, and then they would reject us and turn us down because we weren't married. But we weren't allowed to get married. Right. And if they had accepted us, the Department of Social Services would have gotten $500. And they would have gotten a lot of money at that point because there were a lot of people going through this process. And so once they rejected us, we went to the judge who routinely overturned it. And in fact, my adoption day with Morris was yesterday on the solstice in 1992. Mm-hmm. Well, c- congratulations um, you know, to that. And uh, here we are in 2015, lots of change, and people yeah. can now get married and are having kids um, who are already considered their legal uh, child, although we still have barriers. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, we're doing this program in partnership with Open House, who really speak for the LGBTQ senior community here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and uh, in, in which the organization also talks about senior issues. Uh, you have Morris. You know, and, and I, I, I wonder in terms of the, the future as we're aging, if there's anything that you feel anxious about or that you fear. Um, well, yeah, <laughs> I fear our society is falling apart. Right. I mean, we're living in sort of insane times with lots of war and killing and discrimination and profiling of people. So that, to me, is terrifying. Um, As an LGBT senior, you know, as a lesbian, a senior elder lesbian, one of the things that I find that's upsetting is how how much old, O-L-D, seems to be spelled B-A-D, bad. Hmm. I mean, the word old, it's like you have to avoid it at all costs. What do you mean by that? So a doctor comes into a, a, a patient room and an old woman is in the room and she says, hello, young lady. Uh. Now, and I'll say, oh, I'm not a young lady. I'm an old lady. Oh, no, 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 you're not old. Like, God forbid you should be old. Mm. That's a bad thing to be. And my usual response is, it's not a bad thing to be old. I can be an old lady. I can be active, curious, articulate, smart, creative, and old. And, and active, you can also still be extremely active and political in your community because At you... Which I still am. You still are, yeah. I still am. I sing with a group called Occupella, which, uh, which sings at BART stations in honor of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And um, I have been a member of a group called OLOC, Old Lesbians Organizing for Change, which also uh, targets ageism, the the kind of thing I was talking about, old being bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's something that I think it's sort of like one of the 
one of the issues that doesn't get raised as much. You know how there's more dis- more understanding about discrimination against disability and becoming more understanding about discrimination against fat people, although that still is a real problem mm-hmm. also. But old, it seems like it's still okay to not, you know, I'm, se- I'm, I'm 80 years young. No, you're 80 years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. I, I really do enjoy your spirit. And unfortunately, we, we've ran out of time and uh, I've been enjoying these so much. So I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for participating in our program. Well, I'm so glad that you had me on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Happy holidays to you. And same to you. So everyone, that is our program. And uh, we this program has been in partnership with Open House. So thank you to Open House for helping us uh, with this. And uh, I wanted to do this to bring recognition and exposure to the LGBTQ senior community and um, and the issues that impact our, our, our senior community, but also that we shouldn't forget our LGBT pioneers. And I can't believe that I'm so lucky to be living in this city, you know, with these people at... Um, uh, at, uh, who are available to me, <laughs> you know? And so please support LGBT seniors, support our future, and uh, make a tax-deductible donation today by visiting openhouse-sf.org. We'll do the same tomorrow, and we'll continue the series of uh, interviews with our LGBT pioneers until the end of the year. So thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. For everything else, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you tomorrow.